0: welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. Really pumped that you're joining us today. We have good conversations about philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Uh, Today we're going to be talking a lot about theology. I have Robbie Lashua with us. He is one half of the Christ Culture and Coffee podcast, an amazing podcast, not just for the coffee tips, but really just all around a really exciting podcast. Um, Robbie, welcome to Adhering Apologetics. How are you doing? What's up, Zach? Hey, man. Thanks for letting me be on the show. I'm excited about it. Yeah, man. It's really fun. I'm looking forward to this. You reached out to me a little bit ago talking about some Calvinism stuff, and I'm really pumped to talk with you about it because I think there's a lot of really important issues in this whole debate um, that we're going to address a little bit. But before we get too much into the heavy theology stuff, could you talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do for someone who has no idea who this Robbie
1: Lashio guy is? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, most people don't. My mom, if she watches, she'll know. But other than that, it <laughs> won't be anybody. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church in uh, Good year Arizona, which is uh, like on the west side of Phoenix. Uh, I've been there for eight years now. I've been a youth pastor before, um, super theology apologetics nerd. I uh, went to Bible college, uh, met my wife there a while back. Then I went to Phoenix Seminary and uh, got my, uh, what is it, uh, degree from there in biblical mm-hmm. communications. And then I uh, went to Biola because I love apologetics, so I got a master's mm-hmm. in that. And so yeah, I do classes. I, I'm a professor at Mission Bible Institute for Ethics, Worldview, and Apologetics. Um, obviously, I'm an associate pastor at our church for apologetics. I have the podcast, Christ Culture and Coffee um, I have four kids, which keeps us really busy, <laughs> which is kids are unbelievably awesome. Like I love it. So it's such a huge blessing in my life. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of a little bit about me. I'm a, I'm a native Arizonan. I was born in Northern Arizona up in the trees where it sows. And then uh, I moved down to the desert to go to school like, uh, what would it be 17 years ago? So mm. I gotta say, I was in Arizona
0: for the first time this summer and I have a lot of respect for you just surviving in that heat. I couldn't do that. i go into a full summer there
1: it's awful like people always tell you oh you'll get used to it no you won't like i've lived here, i've lived down here like for a long time now more i've lived down here more than i lived up in north you don't get used to it it's miserable like it's just <laughs> the worst but it's the trade off of do i want to shovel snow like most of the country you know or do i want to deal with the heat in the summer so this is our like winter time where everyone just stays inside cuz of air conditioning and then for 9 months out of the year 8 months of the year it's really great Mm. yeah so I, before we get into a little bit of the uh, calvinism stuff that
0: we we're be talking about mm-hmm. i do know that you told me you are uh, were a classmate of the man called vocab malone that maybe a yeah. few people might know about so do you have any like embarrassing vocab stories you can share so that people can just no, mess with <laughs>
1: no nothing i can share no I'm just kidding no he's no i love that guy <laughs> he he's doing such great stuff and he has been for a long time i remember like When we were in school together, he was doing a lot of his hip-hop stuff. And so we actually had him come out to our church to do a youth rally event uh, where he did, I'm pretty sure, it was the halftime show of the 2007 or 8 Super Bowl. It was the one where the Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers were in. Hey, Steelers, yeah. Yeah, so, well, hey, I'm from Arizona. I wasn't too stoked about
0: that. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) bad territory to bring out. Maybe a little bit of a too much of a rough memory for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But anyway, uh, it was it was then. And yeah, he came out to the church and did like a hip hop. I think he did halftime, which was way great because we had another band to do after it. And everyone was just depressed. So that was like the worst concert, <laughs> concert of those guys. But no, man, he's he's awesome. I've known him for a while. I spoke at his church at an apologetics conference a few months back. So, yeah, he's he's a great dude.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I do want to say that you may have been depressed with the whole Super Bowl result back then, but for people like me from Pennsylvania, beautiful day. Love
1: to see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But you've got so many of those beautiful days, man. We don't even have one, you know? We, so did, we need right. a few
0: more. Maybe we'll give you one, but the Steelers are yeah. pretty bad right now, so who knows? Yeah, um, yeah. But,
1: but into the serious
0: stuff, today we're going to be talking about um the idea of Calvinism. Obviously, you're not a Calvinist, so we're going to be talking a little bit about no. some of the objections have to calvinism talking about some proof text things like that so could you just just to start off could you just give like a brief overview of kind of like your journey into this whole you know calvinist slash arminius slash whatever else debate and kind of like where you stand
1: yeah yeah so uh i grew up in the church and bible believing bible teaching churches and i would say they weren't like like militant on either direction. It was they weren't charismatic. They were more like community baptistic churches, but not super, this is where we stand and here's why. It was just, yeah, we preach the Bible, and and that was kind of it. And so I grew up with people saying the word Calvinism, and I thought it meant was you can't lose your salvation. I thought that was the difference. Arminians think you can lose your salvation. The Bible clearly teaches you can't. So um I'm a Calvinist because I don't think you can lose your (laughs) salvation. So that's how I grew up, thinking. Um, And then I got into college and just kind of, you know, diving into it more. I went to a Bible school here in Phoenix. And uh, there are people on all sides of it and just really kind of – Discussing what does the Bible say? What does scripture say? And I was more and more convinced that uh Calvinism's not true. I mean, I, I think I kind of mm. learned what it actually was first. Then I was convinced the Bible doesn't say that. But I was also convinced the Bible doesn't say that Arminianism is true. And so mm. I'm not uh I'm not an Arminian, uh, and I'm not a Calvinist. I'm I'm neither one of those things. So um yeah, that's kind of my journey into it. And then in seminary, I really dove into it more and um I know Vocab, when he was on your show a while ago, he was talking about Phoenix Sem and uh, how uh, there was like guys on the grace side of things. And then Wayne Grudem was the only reformed guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's kind of true. There were other professors that I had there who were Calvinist uh, that weren't grace guys at all, like my Greek professor, like a a bunch of them. So um, I I loved that school because it had guys on both sides of the spectrum and uh, they really educated you. They didn't indoctrinate you. And I always thought I'd never want to go to a school that was just one note because I want to Mm. hear the best arguments from this guy. And I want to hear the best arguments from this guy. And I want to think through it. And unfortunately, most schools are, you know, we all agree on this. Um, But Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to go to Phoenix at a time where it wasn't like that. Um, it's mm. it's kind of more like that now, where it's more one note uh, on the reform side of things. Um, but uh, so I loved it. So I I just really dived into it for my you know four and a half years in seminary, thinking through it, and then especially in regards to apologetics, thinking through how does that kind of theology mesh with apologetics and with philosophy.
0: Mm. Yeah, one thing I really like that you brought up is the idea that it's so good to be in environments where you have kind of like both sides. Like I think for me, one of my my biggest struggles with why I didn't want to go to Christian college, I just don't want to be surrounded by Christians. Like I love Christians, but I wanted to be challenged by non-Christians. But then, you know, there's circumstances and here I am at a Christian college. But I do respect because I think it's so important that we really – see both sides because I think we live in a time where everyone's strawmanning each other. And I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that as we keep on going. But sure. I think that it's important to realize that on both sides of this debate or all three or four or five, whatever, whatever, po- how many positions there are, there's really smart people on each side. And I think that's
1: an important thing to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. No, that's totally true. And there's not just really smart people on all sides. There's really godly people on all sides. Mm. Yeah, um, like, like Wayne Grudem was one of my profs and I don't agree with his soteriology at all. Like I, I'm very vehemently disagree with him, but he loves Jesus and mm-hmm. he's really kind and he serves the Lord and he he's godly, like he he loves the Lord. And then I've had yeah. Arminians who I disagree with and they love Jesus. And so mm. there's smart people on all sides and there's godly people on all sides. And um, yeah, the debate should be on, let's, let's really dig into what the Bible says so that we're mm. accurate with what we're saying not vilifying the other the other sides
0: mm, yeah that's really good stuff you bring up robbie so let's go with this um let's talk about some of your issues with calvinism um obviously okay. i'm sure there's a lot you could say but if if, there, if you're going to point out two or three or four how many reasons you, reasons you need to say i'm not a calvinist because of this just kind of lay out why you aren't a calvinist
1: yeah uh, I, I i think uh, in regards to soteriology right in regards to the theology of salvation Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of what this whole debate's about. Uh, I'm not a Calvinist because I don't think any of the five tenets of Calvinism are biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you th- the hard thing with this debate is there's people who, like I used to, call themselves a Calvinist, and they don't know what the teachings are of the reformed theology of mm-hmm. Calvin, but then later on, developed by his son-in-law, Theodore Beza and Perkins and all these guys. So they don't know the theology. They just have labeled themselves with that. And so, it's important to acknowledge right up front, there's a spectrum of belief when it comes to Calvinism, right? There's people who say they believe in the, all the five points, but they don't define the five points the way that the theology yeah. does, or there's the four pointers or the, you know, so there's a spectrum. So I'm not arguing against people. I'm, I want to argue against the theology and the ideology of Calvinism, um, especially what, what, you know, was often called hyper Calvinism, which honestly, I think is only the only consistent Calvinism. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think you can be a four pointer because the system is so interlocking. And to, to lose one of them, it, it disjoints the whole thing. So uh, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I disagree with. I don't think any of the five points are biblical. And then, you know, some people would add a six point of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important because um, sovereignty has gotten masked as. Uh, determinism in the Calvinist system. And it, it actually goes all the way back to Augustine. Uh, for the first 22, 24-ish years of Augustine's ministry, uh, he taught uh, what everybody else in the early church was teaching, that uh, election was based on foreknowledge, uh, that humans had a free will, um, all of these types of things that, that I would hold to. Uh, and then after the Pelagian controversy, he actually reverted back to uh, his Manichaean Gnostic beliefs because he was a Manichaean Gnostic priest for 10 years prior to becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, so he imported those Gnostic ideas into theology, into Christianity, and that's what Luther and Calvin read. When they were trying to reform the church, Calvin even says in his Institutes, "I'm not writing anything I didn't find in Augustine." Like, you know, like all of this stuff goes back to yeah. him. So I think if you really want to study Reformed ideology, you need to look at the later years of Augustine and see what he taught. Um, there's a fascinating book on this by uh, Don, uh, let me grab it here. I don't want to pronounce Ken Wilson. Uh, he got his he wrote his dissertation at Oxford on uh, Augustinian Calvinism and he's like one of the only four people alive who've read all of Augustine's works and he's the only person alive who's read his works chronologically. I think that's it. So like he's yeah. he's an expert on it and he points out and shows you, here's what happened and here's when he reverted and imported these Gnostic pagan ideas into Christianity. And so uh, I know that sounds so insane, but I'm pretty sure that that's what's happened based on the documentation. Through, uh, through church history. So with that, um, I don't believe in um, uh, determinism or fatalism. right? And uh, the Calvinists will call it compatibilism. And what they mean by compatibilism is that you are free to do the greatest desire of your heart at any moment. And that's what freedom is. However, it's God who gives you desire, which means you're not free. You do what God makes you do. And I even heard vocab say the first half of that on your podcast, (laughs) he said, you're free to do the thing your heart desires most. Mm. And it's like, yes, and where does that come from? Well, it's (laughs) ordained by God. Okay, so Mm. determinism. So I don't think we live in a deterministic world. And if we do, Christianity and how God has communicated himself to us is ridiculous. Mm. Uh, In a deterministic world, I don't need the Bible. Why, Why do I need this book to hear the gospel message? when he's just gonna force me to do what he wants me to do. And then he's not going to allow other people to believe in him because he's forcing them to reject him. You know, mm-hmm. How does he hold people responsible for what they do if he's forcing it upon us? Like that's mm-hmm. complete injustice, right? Um, so it just philosophically and apologetically, it doesn't work, but then biblically it's not there. So sovereignty, even the word, you know, it's a Latin word. The word sovereignty is not in the Bible. It's a doctrine we've developed from verses in the Bible about God's being in control and God's power. And I think God's completely in control. Um, I'm not an open theist. I don't Mm. think he's learning, right? He's immutable, he doesn't change. But um, I, I think we have to ask the question, how has he chosen to bring about his plans? And can God puppet master all of us? Sure, he could if he wanted to. I just think he explains that that's not what he's doing. And that there's a reason why. So the sovereignty thing, um, I think he's totally in control, but I don't think he has to be a manipulator to be in control. I think he's actually bigger than that, mm-hmm. um, a lot bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So then each point of TULIP, I mean, we could go through these. I just, I don't, I don't agree with them at all. The idea that total depravity means you're totally unable to respond to God and, um, I don't think that that's true. I'd say we're pervasively depraved, like every aspect of us is jacked up. Um, But we still retain the Imago Dei. Um, In the Old Testament, they were told not to kill because people are made in the image of God. James even says that. So so we still retain something of the image of God. Um, And I don't think I can save myself. I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, right? Because I can't save me i can do nothing to achieve perfection like we've all fallen short of the glory if one person breaks one point of the law they're guilty of the whole thing Mm. so we are screwed from the get-go like there's no way to dig yourself out of that hole but i don't think that means i can't recognize somebody throws a rope down the hole to save me right and so that's where i think there's a big difference so if you accept total depravity in the calvinist view as meaning total inability then the whole rest of the system follows if total depravity is not true which i don't think it is and i don't think there's scriptural support for it then mm. the whole system fails
0: yeah so what do you make of the passages you know to say like we're dead in our sins or things like that that you know the common proof text for the idea of total depravity like how do you kind of
1: look at that from your perspective well you have to always look at the context right and, and everyone will say that context context that's how you read the bible of course context it is, is yeah, so so let's get into it, right? We're dead to do what? Mm-hmm. Dead for dead for what? I, I that's always the question, is like what does dead mean? Uh because it obviously doesn't mean you're literally dead, because you're alive to be reading it. <laughs> so, you, so you're not dead. <laughs> well, are right? you? Maybe you're just like a brain getting like poked or something. You never know. Sure. hey this could be the matrix. It could be. I don't think it's <laughs> very probable, but it is possible. Um so the question always has to become dead to what? And I think it's dead to save yourself. Like we have been separated from God because of our sin and there's nothing on our end we can do to repair that relationship. It all has to be initiated from his side. Um, so I think that's what it's referring to when it says dead. Um, Cause obviously we're not dead. It's a metaphor of some type, right? So we have to ask, yeah. what is the metaphor explaining?
0: Mm. So let's kind of get, just walk through these other points. Um, mm-hmm. just briefly, I'm really curious on, cause you said you reject all five, you know, the idea of perseverance at the saints, feet you hold some form of eternal security, but we'll, we'll save that best for last, I guess. Um, yeah. but can you of just walk through some of these points? Like you got unconditional election,
1: irresistible grace, limited atonement. Can you gotta just walk through those points. Yeah. So unconditional election, it follows. If you believe in total inability, then you can't do anything to save yourself. Therefore, God elected you not based on something you did because you can't do anything, right? That's the logic. But Mm -hmm. if total inability is not true, then you don't have to have unconditional election. And I think that the Bible speaks clearly against unconditional election. I got a couple of passages here. So Romans 8, right? Huge passage about this whole election Mm -hmm. thing. It literally says... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Foreknowledge preceded predestination. So how is it not conditioned on something? Right? Mm-hmm. So so yeah. I think just according to what the Bible says, it says it. First peter one one through two uh, says to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, So elected, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God. Hmm. Okay, so they're chosen based on what? So I've never understood that one. That one blows my mind because it seems like scripture speaks completely um, against it. Now, I don't believe in um, the Arminian view specifically of of conditional election. I believe in corporate election. Jesus is the elect one. And if I'm in him, then Mm -hmm. I'm elect. Jesus, Messiah literally means chosen one, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm in Christ, I'm elect, which is what Ephesians one talks about. It's all about what we have in him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking with you. (laughs) So for unconditional election, I just think scripture clearly says the opposite of what the Calvinist is trying to say, but they're holding on so tightly to total depravity, meaning total inability, which comes from Augustine's idea of Gnosticism, that the body's bad and the spirit's good, but we can't break out of this without the secret knowledge. I mean, that's where it all comes from. It's just a bad premise to start because it's not reality. So limited atonement Is the one that most people have the biggest problems with, and they should, because Scripture is adamant that election or that atonement is uh, um, unlimited, right? So this one literally, it makes me, I have cried a lot about this, like thinking about how can people actually believe that's who God is, and that's what he has explained to us. Hmm. So the idea of limited atonement for the Calvinists is that God has only died, Jesus only died for the elect, right? So mm-hmm. he only shed his blood for those whom he predestined to be saved." Uh, this is completely anti-biblical. There's about 12 verses that clearly teach unlimited atonement, and there's not one that even hints at limited atonement anywhere. And so that's mm-hmm. why a lot of people are four-point Calvinists, because they can't swallow this pill. So. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. We don't have like eight hours. I have so many notes on this. It's important to distinguish. There's a really great book called The Extent of the Atonement uh, by Dr. Allen, uh, Dr. David L. Allen. And um, in it, he makes a distinction. He says, listen, we need to talk about what was God's intent for the atonement? Who was the atonement extended to? What's the extent? And what's the application of the atonement, right? Mm -hmm. And I think scripture clearly teaches that Christ died in order to make salvation possible for all people, I think that it's extended to all people, meaning that who who was Jesus punished for? Whose sins did Jesus die for? I'm pretty sure the Bible clearly teaches it was for all people, not all types of people, but literally every Type Every person, every single person who's ever lived, he died for all the sins of everybody. But then in application, it only gets applied when a person puts their trust, puts their faith, believes in Jesus. So just because Jesus died for everybody doesn't mean universalism has to come. That's not true because people can reject what he's done. Mm. But see, that's a problem for the Calvinists because you can't do anything <laughs> aside from God, uh, predetermining in the deterministic system what you're gonna do. So it doesn't fit with their system, but it is what scripture um, clearly teaches. And I have um can we read a few verses on that? Is yeah, that cool? go for it. Man, because this is a this is a big deal to me. Um mm-hmm. so John 129. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, one of the first things he says about Jesus, right, is, behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of some people in the world. Oh no, that's not what he said. <laughs> he, says, he takes away the sins of the world. Mm. Okay, so that's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Interesting. Uh, John 3, 14 through 16. This is awesome. Uh, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the world, not some people in the world. It doesn't say elect. It says the world, that whoever, that whoever, okay? Uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19. This is the whole second Adam thesis that Paul talks about, right? And he mm-hmm. says, so then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men through Adam. Right. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as mm-hmm. through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Why say all men if it doesn't mean all men now the calvinist move is it doesn't mean every person it just means all types of people like not just Mm -hmm. jews but gentiles too that's an awesome idea and that's how you can fit it into your theology it's just not what it says like they they could have said for all the nations or for you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah it It says all so what does all mean is a question um this one i th- again i think this is a death nail to it second corinthians mm. 5, uh, 5 14 through 21 for the love of christ controls us having concluded this notice that's the love of christ that controls us not the sovereignty of god that controls us i thought that was mm. fascinating uh yeah. the love of god controls us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, all, all, and now we've got this burden of being ambassadors to beg people to consider that their salvation. Why? Because Christ did die for them. First um, mm. Timothy two three through six, um, I'll just do four through six says. Um, uh, what is acceptable in the sight of God, our God and savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at a proper time. This is a verse I talked to my kids. I had made them memorize it Titus two eleven, <laughs> for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. There mm. you go. Uh, Hebrews two nine, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so extent means he died on the cross for everyone, taste death for everyone. This one I think is interesting, Second Peter 2, 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Wait a second. These false prophets were bought by Jesus? Mm. What does that What does that mean, right? Mm. Um, and then a big one, 1 John uh, 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Hmm. So I don't think you can have um, limited atonement biblically Hmm. without doing a bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics to change all of those passages. And there's not one passage that clearly teaches limited atonement anywhere in the Bible. So Hmm. that one is just... uh, that one really irks me.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I I got you. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the natural um I mean, we could talk about irresistible grace, but I think it's kind of, you know, along the similar lines. But I think I think something that'd be really good to transition to here is let's talk about perseverance of the saints, because I think it's something that I mean, I don't know if you hold to some form of eternal security. but I think it's something that seems very orthodox and at least in American yeah. Christian circles is to hold to some form of eternal security. So can you just talk a little bit about like what, what's your views on that? Yeah,
1: I hold to eternal security for sure. I think that if a person believes in Jesus, they're born again, which means you can't get out of that type of relationship. Uh, You know how Paul even says we're adopted as sons? Well, in the Roman Empire, adoption was more ironclad than being a biological child. So he's like, upping. we think adoption, oh, that's nice. He's like, no, it's like you can't get out of it. If you adopt a kid, you couldn't get out of it. That's what he's saying we have in God. Um, There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, right? Angels, principalities, demons, height, depth. And then he says, or things present or things to come. Mm. And that means if there's way more sinning in my life to come, that can't separate me from God, right? Mm. Apostasy, right? Uh, What if you become a Muslim? Can that separate you from God? Now the question becomes, well, did you believe in the first place? Didn't you, right? Right. And we can you know, go through all of that. We can't know that. But if I've believed in Jesus, there's nothing that can get me out of a relationship with my dad, like my physical relationship with my dad or my mom. I can't get out of that. I will for eternity be their son. I can have a terrible relationship with them. I can hate them. I can never talk to them again. I can renounce them. I can try to change my name, right? But I cannot get out of that relationship. So I hold to a very high view of eternal security. When it comes to perseverance of the saints, um, soft Calvinism would say, that's all it means is that you're preserved to the end. Mm. And if that's what people mean by it, I'm in. If what they mean by it is, you have to continue in good works and get better and better throughout your life. And if you step out of line, then you never had it in the first place. Mm. I don't believe that. Mm. Does that make sense? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm totally tracking with you. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a couple of natural questions that kind of come uh, from what you laid out here. I think the first one is what about people that seem devout? You know, you, you'd have a lot of atheists to say, yeah, I was just a devout Christian. Um, sure. And I'm sure some of them are sincere and what they actually believe they were a devout Christian, but then eventually they apostatize. They wanted from the faith become atheists or Muslims yeah. or things like that. Or there's all kinds of people who would believe that they're devout. So how do you kind of look at that from uh, the perspective of eternal, secu- of eternal security?
1: So, And again, people disagree with me on this and and that's okay. Um, Mm. So I hold to a really high view of when God saves you, it's done. Um, How can he give you the gift of eternal life if it's not eternal? Like, is it just the potential of eternal life that we get when we believe in Jesus? Or do we get eternal life? Does that make sense? (laughs) He says you get eternal life, not you get the maybe have it later if you prove Mm. that you really were good enough. That's mm. Roman Catholicism, right? That's workspace salvations. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, I would say this. If a person really believes, which again, I, I can't know, only God knows. If a mm-hmm. person really believes, they can never get out of that. So I think a person mm. could become an atheist, and when they die, they'll go to heaven. Um, now, people will say that's ridiculous, that's unjust, but I don't think that... Um, God is unjust or unfair. Uh, justice was completely poured out on Christ and he paid it mm. all. Um, but mm. secondly, um, I also think that God is going to make it fair because there are people who screw their whole lives up and and live like crazy. And then they make deathbed confessions, right? And they don't do anything for the Lord while they live on earth. And I'm <laughs> over here trying to live for the Lord and do good. And w- what's the benefit? Does that make sense? Mm. Like, What's the yeah. benefit? Now, I think there's a lot. I think there's an abundant life here and now. Mm -hmm. Walking with Jesus is so much better than doing things on your own. Um, There's a peace and a hope, there's so much. But one of the things the Bible clearly teaches in many, many places is there's also a day coming where you'll be rewarded for what you did for Jesus. He literally Mm -hmm. tells us, store up your treasures in heaven, right? Um, Paul talks about the crown of, of righteousness is now laid up for me, why? Because I ran the race well. He doesn't say, now I get to go to heaven, no, that's ridiculous. You get to go to heaven because of Jesus' work, but there's rewards in heaven to be had. The crown mm-hmm. of righteousness, the crown of life, the the white stone with only a special name that only you and Jesus know, Revelation mm-hmm. talks about, right? To sit, to be a pillar in the temple of God, Revelation says. There's all these rewards listed. And so I think fairness gets meted out in the afterlife at the judgment seat of christ when believers are rewarded for what they did for jesus like in uh the chronicles of narnia at the end right when they come up and that's where Lewis spoil got it, i'm not i haven't finished narnia yet <laughs> oh my gosh get get with the times man now i just need to
0: get, get my I, i'm i'm behind on my literature school is really killing me i can't read yeah. the books i want to read so just I blame it on my
1: professors. <laughs> yeah i understand but but that so so i make a very clear distinction between justification and sanctification. Mm-hmm. And I think sanctification is vitally important because there is so much to lose, reigning with Christ, uh, being called the friend of God. There's all of these rewards to people who take seriously their discipleship. But mm-hmm. I also think there's the prodigal sons who are a son and then they say, I hate mm-hmm. you and I want my inheritance and I wish you were dead and they run away and they blow it. But when they come back, what does the father do? Does he reject them? No, he says, you're my son. He says, no, I'll be a slave. He says, what are you talking about? That isn't who you are. Now, at the end of that parable, you remember the older son's pissed about it. He's really mad about it. Yeah. Why? He says, dad, this is unfair. I've been here the whole time. I'm doing all this stuff for you. And this guy just gets to trounce back in here after the way he treated you. And the father says something fascinating. He says, listen, all that I have is yours. He, he squandered his inheritance. That's done. I'm not giving him another inheritance because you were faithful to me. That's what you have, but he's my son. I can't reject my son, right? And Mm -hmm. and that's how it is in our relationship with God. So I am a strong believer in eternal security, but I don't think we have to do good works for our justification. I'm pretty sure that's what Protestantism is based on, Mm -hmm. but I do think good works play a huge role in the Christian life and a huge role in the Christian afterlife. Does that yeah. help? Is that kind of what you were getting at?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's great. Um, and I think there's one more common objection that you'll see to eternal security. I was talking with a Calvin if like a week ago, a week or two ago, this objection is brought up, and it's like you talk about this idea that like once you're saved, you're saved, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Like yeah, that almost sounds. Be like that sounds a little bit Calvinistic. It sounds like you're denying free will here, Robbie. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you look at that from a, the idea that once you're saved, they are saved, that you're saved, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that um that you have to ask what type of free will do we have as human beings. Mm. And um there's either compatibilism, determinism, or there's libertarian free will. And now within libertarian free will there's two types. There's hard libertarianism and soft libertarianism. Hard libertarianism is you always can do whatever you want and you can always make a choice uh, in every situation ever. That's not true. Um Uh, a a heroin addict at a certain point can't choose not to be addicted anymore. Right. Yeah. Because of why, because you made free will choices in the past to hang out with wrong people, to try drugs, to give into peer pressure, whatever you made free will choices in the past that have now taken away your freedom in the future. Right. Like we see this all the time with different people. So I think soft libertarianism is true, which is we can um, most of the time make choices between things and it comes from us. It's not forced upon us by God. He sovereignly decreed for us to have libertarian free will is what I think. (laughs) And there's reason for it. But when it comes to, well, that's, if you can't choose to reject him and burn in hell forever, then you're not really free. No, it's just that you made a choice in the past that took away a certain type of freedom in the future, just like any, anything else that you do in the past. Now, the truth of it is you're more free because you've chosen to believe in Jesus and because you will go to heaven. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird uh, idea to think to be really free is to reject God and burn in hell. Actually, no, to be really free is to do what you know to be the right thing to do, Mm. right? So um, I don't think that that follows, but I do think choices we make in the past impact the choices we can make in the future. And if I made a new creation, like Corinthians says, and if I am born again, like Jesus says, I can't get out of that relationship. Like, Mm. I think that's why he uses those types of metaphors because it's not like a, hey, I'm making a sandal covenant with you, right? It's not, I make it, it's a totally new covenant. It's different than that. It's very binding. Why? Because it's bound in it. the blood of the God of the universe. How can mm. you get out of that? So that's, that's where I'd stand on that. I don't think it means we're not free if we can't reject our sonship. Mm. Yeah, it's really good you bring
0: up. I'll bring in one last thing is we kind of talk with the idea of eternal security. If um, we get to a couple more philosophical objections to Calvinism, but the, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the warning passages in Hebrews. There's, there's five of them, I believe. And there's mm-hmm. warnings about apostatizing or wandering away from the faith. So yeah. from, the, from an eternal well, – no, I'm sorry. I cannot talk right now. Um, from the eternal security position, how do you look at those warning passages?
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> this is what I think. I think this is the one area – not the one area, sorry. I love that. This is the one area where the Arminian has some clout about losing your salvation is the five warning passages in Hebrews. Because just from a cursory reading of them, you go, oh, my gosh, look at this, right? Yeah. The, the question that we have to ask is, who is Hebrews written to? Right? Mm-hmm. It's written to Christians, which eliminates the Calvinist idea that, oh, it's a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. And so if they really were Christians, they wouldn't apostatize. They have no leg to stand on with the book of Hebrews, I think. The Armenians do, though. So you have to take each one of those point by point, which I mean, I'd love to come on and do that in another show and and get through all of that because it's so thick. But the question you're looking at is what are they warning about? Is Mm -hmm. it warning about death and and pain and suffering in this life? Is it warning about eternal damnation in hell forever? Because it never says that. Is it warning about loss of reward? Is it warning about loss of fellowship? What are the warnings about? That And as I think that's the whole crux of the issue. Um, I think sometimes whenever people read the Bible and they see really strong language um, or warnings that they always equate everything in the Bible with heaven-hell. And it's like mm. there's so much more to what God's doing than just heaven-hell. Of course, that's a huge issue. That's a big deal. But that's like the the milk, right? Isn't that like the beginning point to the Christian life? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's the writer of Hebrews who says, you need to push past that <laughs> because there's a lot more God has in store for his people after the 80 or 90 years you have here. So I think that's kind of the crux of the whole thing and to dive into each of those and dissect what are they talking about? But I don't think they're saying you can lose your salvation or reject God and, ne- and not be saved into heaven. i can't hear you hold on it says you're on mute
0: can you hear me now yep got it it. yeah i think my mic just kind of went unplugged or something now i'm just going off uh external audio so the audio might be a little less clear okay well i'm glad it worked Um, i was gonna say i'd love to do that show on the hebrew passages sometime um let's look at a couple of common philosophical objections to (laughs) Your view or something like this is just thing to see someone will throw out a tweet or something like that and be like, oh, no, Arminius. You know, I know you're not an Arminius, but, oh, people, yeah. this uh, line of thought will believe this. And I think the first one of them is that faith is a work. Um, I think mm-hmm. you know Calvinists will be like, God chose me. I didn't do anything. He chose me. Faith, faith would be a work under an Arminius perspective. So how do you look at the idea of faith from your view?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the biblical word faith is pistis, right? <clears throat> pistis, pistuo, faith, believe. Um, I don't think that trust is a work. Um, th- think about this. Um, the currency that God wants to deal with us in is trust. He wants us to trust him. That's awesome. He doesn't want us to work hard for him or pay him. He wants trust. That's that's the deal that he's working in us. So um, is it a work if a, a drug addict realizes they need help? Is that a work? Is that realization a work? I don't know if that's a work, right? And I think that that's where we're at is we hear this offer of salvation and you know how can they believe without a preacher and how can they preach without the gospel? Like we hear the message and we go, I need that. That is a work? I don't see how that's a work at all. That seems like a, almost like a straw man or they're trying to set up and, and redefine things. It makes no sense to me how that is a work uh, in any way. They can say it, but it doesn't make sense to me to admit I need help, is a work. Uh, and I've never heard any AA program say that, like admitting it is the first work. No, it's a step, <laughs> but I don't know if it's work, right? It's, it's almost, yeah. what is it? It's realizing reality. Mm. It's just it's just admitting what's happening is actually happening. It's not living in a delusion anymore. So is that a work or is that just a surrender? I I kind of view it as just a surrender. So it seems to me that there is work done in order for faith to take place, but the the work isn't on the point of the person who's doing the trusting. The work is on the person who's being trusted in. Because Hmm. in order for me to trust in somebody, they have to show me that they're trustworthy, right? Hmm. Jesus did all the work and shows us he's trustworthy, and my role in it is to say, I admit it and I want it. That's it. So there is work involved, but it's not on the part of me. It's on the part of the person um, that wants to show they're, they're trustworthy. Now, the irony with this whole thing is that the Calvinists somewhat believe in works-based, maybe not works-based salvation, but works-based assurance, right? How can I know I'm really saved? Well, you better examine yourself. You better make sure you're doing work. So they they get on you know my view because they say, oh, faith is a work. And then I say, well, assurance is a work for you. Like, like security <laughs> of salvation is all based on your performance. And then how much performance do I have to have, right? Mm. Um, and uh, it, it was just, it was crazy. I I had, you know, I've had reformed professors as, uh, as a student in seminary. And one time we were asking a guy, how many, h- h- let's quantify it. How much good work do I have to have to know I'm in? Mm. Because that's a big deal, right? Like, I need to know, like, okay, so I shouldn't rape people. That seems like a no-brainer. But what if I keep struggling with lust? Or what if I keep struggling with lying? Or, like, like how much is too much? Can we mm. put, you know, 30 sins a week? Can we quantify it? Because mm. if, if my eternal security is in the balance, I really want to be devout. Mm-hmm. And so we were asking him this, and he looked at us, and he said, you need some. Mm. And I thought, that's not very definitive to me at all. And the reason he can't quantify it is because the Bible doesn't teach that. But Mm. the Bible does teach works are important for your sanctification to show God that you love him and for eternal rewards. So, Mm. yeah, I don't think that faith uh, is a work at all. And I think it's ironic coming from a belief system that places such a high value on works. Anyway, Mm. that's where where I'm at with it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, We'll go to a couple of common proof text that you get, kind of get your thoughts on. Sure. Um, and then we'll, if anyone listening live has some questions, maybe you can hit a couple questions on the way out. Um, but for now, we'll kind of go to some common proof text. I think one of the things I've seen most recently, I know James White and Layton Flowers are going at it again over um, John 6. And there's a couple verses yeah. there. Uh, verse 37, which says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And John mm-hmm. six forty-four, which says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Um, so you have these ideas that the Father is giving uh, Jesus people that are, I guess, saved, I guess you could say, if you're a Calvinist. So how do you look at these verses from your perspective?
1: Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, let's start with John 6.44, and then we'll go to 6.37. Is that cool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go okay. for it, man. So John 6.44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So This is the Bible, and I believe this is true. I think that God always takes the initiative in salvation because I'm dead to save myself. I am stuck. There's nothing I can do to reconcile the relationship with God. He has to be the initiator. He has to be the one providing atonement and propitiation, and he has to be the one who forgives. I basically just say, I'd really like that, right? (laughs) He says, here's how I'm offering it. Do you want it? And I go, yeah, I, I really would like that. I believe right that's that's Mm -hmm. what he's always the initiator so I've got no problem with John 644 and actually I wrote my Greek uh master's thesis on John 644 Mm. um so yeah no problem with that right no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him the question that we need to ask is who does the father draw so I don't know how Calvinists use this all the time to say, see, that proves Calvinism. It doesn't prove anything. Like we all agree God's the initiator of salvation, but who does the father draw? And does scripture tell us? Oh man, crazy enough. Even in the book of John, it tells us, right? So here's some other passages from John that talk about uh, who God and how God draws. Uh, John 1, in him was life. And this life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of men. Uh, John 1, 6, uh, John 1, sorry, 6 and 7. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the Baptist, right? And he came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Okay, so the light is the light of men. John testifies about the light of men in order that all could believe. Seems like drawing all. First, uh, John 1, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Seems clear that in John's theology, in the very first chapter, Jesus is the light. He enlightens all men. Uh, He came into the world to enlighten every man so that they could believe in him. Then John 3.16, right? God loved the world that he initiates. He sends the son. So that whoever believes, right? He didn't send the world, the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It says in uh, John 3:17, uh, "He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already." Okay. Now, if Calvinism is true, it'd be because he wasn't elected and God didn't want him. Mm-hmm. What does it say? He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, which means he's enabled to. He could believe in it, and he's judged because he rejects it. I don't know how else to read that passage. And then he says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They don't come to the light not because they're not drawn. They don't come to the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. Which means they could come to the light if they were okay with their deeds being exposed. So I don't I don't see uh, that idea. And then with the whole drawing thing, and this is a common rejection of the Calvinist view of John six forty four, is that in John twelve thirty two Jesus says, "And if I, and I if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself." So I think even in the book of John we see that God is drawing all men. Now that doesn't mean all will be saved, but it means those who believe in him will be. Now, the problem comes with John 6:37, right? Wait yeah. a second. Jesus <laughs> says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out." So everybody the so what they're thinking is that everybody the Father draws mm-hmm. will be saved. Therefore, he can't be drawing everybody because mm-hmm. everyone's not saved. That's mm-hmm. the logic behind it, right? I think that the problem they're having is that they're not reading John six thirty seven 37 very uh, scrupulously. So let's look at this. And we need to read John 30, 6, 37 through 40, okay? Because mm. the whole passage. So listen to the pronouns. This is a big deal. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So in this passage, there's two different things being talked about. There's the neuter pronoun, that's the that, or the it, and then there's the masculine pronoun, that's the who, okay? The Calvinist mushes it all together like it's the same thing. I don't think it's the same thing at all, and that's why I think different pronouns are used, like words mean something, right? Jesus makes arguments based on verb tenses in the Old Testament, this means something. So. If you look in the Old Testament, there are a lot of passages about the inheritance that God will give to the Messiah. Hmm. And one of the inheritances that the Messiah gets is the nation of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So could it be that the neuter pronoun referred to is referring to the nation of Israel, which God is handing over to Jesus, and the masculine pronoun is referring to individuals who believe in the Son? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm totally
1: tracking So so let me read it to you with that interpretation, right? So it would say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So all all the inheritance I've got coming to me will come to me, Mm -hmm. including Israel as a nation. Mm -hmm. And the one who comes to me, the individual, I won't cast out because I've come down, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And here's the will of him who sent me, that all that he's given me, all the inheritance— I won't lose any of it, but I'll raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father that everyone who the individual beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So I think he's talking about his inheritance as the Messiah and the Davidic king and inheriting Israel and also that individuals listening to him can come and believe in him. Hmm. So I... I, I think it's I, in my mind it's pretty clear that it's not talking about um, that that this is the same equates it with the drawing individuals passage that's a few verses later. Does that does that kind of make a little sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tracking with you. Obviously, it, <laughs> it might be wrong. It might be wrong. But no, but I, I think you were, it would like, make it fallible. I thought Robbie could, could never be wrong. Oh, no, it's happened at least once or twice in my life. No, dude, yeah, no. <laughs> it could be wrong. But I think we have to say, well, why the switch in pronouns? He mm-hmm. must be talking about two different things. Like, that's why they do that. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Go, go, go. All you.
1: Yeah, so that's why that's why I, I don't think that those prove what the Calvinist wants them to prove. Um, there's no passage anywhere in the Bible that says God only died for the elect, and that Jesus didn't die for everybody else, and that the only people who've got a shot at getting into heaven are the people who were picked before the beginning of time, not based on anything. Like, there's nothing like that. One other thing about the unconditional election part is that God doesn't process thoughts, right? He's omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows all actual, and he knows all possible, right? Uh So how can they act like he unconditionally elected people, meaning it wasn't based on anything they would do, because mm-hmm. there's never been a time where God didn't know what people would do. Does that make sense? It's almost like yeah. you're saying before a certain amount, He didn't know what people would do, so He picked. I don't understand that at all. <laughs> like, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's yeah. possible for God to do that.
0: Yeah, Robbie, I really appreciate this conversation, man. We got we covered a lot of ground in just about 50 minutes, the time's flown by. Uh- I'm curious just to wrap things up here. Uh, First off, do you have any kind of like last thoughts stuff you want to get off
1: your chest before we wrap things up? And then after that,
0: feel free to just
1: plug all your stuff. Yeah. One thing I think is a big deal is that God explains himself to us in the Bible as love. Uh, First, Sean talks about that, right? God is love. He doesn't say he's sovereignty. Um, The great faith, hope and love, right. Are there, but the greatest of these is sovereignty. No, love, right? The love chapter. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Love covers over a multitude of sins, not sovereignty. So there's all these passages that are all about God being motivated because he is love. God loved the world that he gave his only son, not God decreed sovereignly he loves, right? So I think that that's the crux of the whole thing. The reason God created us with libertarian free will is because He wants creatures who actually love Him, not robots who are forced to say "I love you" like a build-a-bear that you program would be. Oh. And and so I, and, and 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 this is a thing. It's not about Him being in control. It's about Him gaining the love of His creatures so that we'll love Him back. Because there is a day coming where every single knee will bow under the name of Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. So if he wants to force his lordship on people, like that's easy to do. He's all powerful. He could do that whenever he wants. And there's a day coming when he wills. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So mm-hmm. they will, think about this, they will glorify him and acknowledge who he is, but a lot of those people won't love him. Mm. And he's after us loving him. It's the greatest of virtues. So I think that we need to be careful of which of his attributes we elevate above the others. And sovereignty, I don't think, should be the one, especially a particular view of sovereignty, mm. when he explains himself as God is love. So that's mm. that's a big deal to me.
0: Mm. Yeah, Rob, we really appreciate the time. Man. It's been a really great conversation. Really appreciate this. I do want to say talk about your podcast for a little bit because I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast and I really enjoy it. It's a great podcast. Can you just talk a little bit about Grace Culture and Coffee?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, we started the podcast like um, over two years ago now. We come out with episodes every Thursday at four o'clock Arizona time and it's just on apologetics. Our, our goal is really to um, equip people that are between the ages of 20 to 35 with how do I talk to my friends and neighbors about Jesus, because so many people are biblically illiterate, so many people don't know apologetics or even hear of the word, unfortunately, and so we want to, it's a real lay level, um, we're trying to explain to people what apologetics are, so I'm doing a lot of the same stuff you are, we have guests on, you know, and uh, we do our own shows at times. Um, but we cover everything, you know, resurrection, apologetics, different cults, Mormonism, uh, Islam, uh, we're doing, we're going to start doing this Hinduism thing in, in a couple of weeks, uh, pro pro life stuff. We, d- we covered all homosexual issues, uh, LGBT, all of that stuff. So, um, we just, we just see it as like, a, we want to equip. The church to understand these issues, so they could be effective witnesses. So I love it, man. I I like preparing the the shows. You know, like I'm sure you love doing this, and uh, it's it's just a really cool way to reach God's people and to impact the the kingdom.
0: Mm, yeah, man, I love the podcast. Encourage everyone to go check it out. And yeah, like, I I do I do love this. I'm really blessed by everyone who supported, so that I can make this kind of like a part time job almost, so that uh, while I'm in college. Um, so don't worry, I I did quit my job, but I'm it's I'm <laughs> like random person. My parents days. I still have a full time college degree, uh, sure. or I'm working on. I'm on my way there. Uh, nice. Thank you, thank you everyone for tuning in. Really appreciate the time. This is in apologetics. Be sure to like, subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, you can support us at patreoncom apologetics Really appreciate everyone's support. It's really meant a lot. Um, as we kind of go into college and all that stuff. Uh, that's it, Robbie. Thank you so much for your time, man.
1: Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Zach. This was great. Yeah, for sure. All right, have a good one, everyone.